Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I am Sarah Seidner and this is CNN Tonight. A major development tonight following that bombshell testimony from a former Trump White House aide. The January 6th committee has just subpoenaed former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone to compel him to testify. He's long been considered a key witness by the committee, but he's resisted speaking further with the panel after sitting for a closed-door interview back in April. The committee claims its investigation has revealed evidence Cipollone repeatedly raised legal and other concerns about then-President Trump's activities on January 6, 2021, and in the days that preceded, and needs to hear from him on the record, as they note, other former White House counsels have done in other congressional investigations. There are, of course, privilege arguments about him coming forward and testifying about exchanges with a then-sitting president of the United States, who was ostensibly his client, so it's unclear whether he will comply with the subpoena. But tonight, a lawyer familiar with Cipollone's thinking tells CNN he will probably agree to a transcribed interview limited to specific topics to avoid the attorney-client privilege issues. The question of whether his testimony would be recorded or live is another issue that would need to be worked out. What we do know is there was Tuesday's stunning testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, a former aide to then-Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. She alleged Cipollone had very serious concerns about Donald Trump's actions on January 6th. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. There really has never been testimony quite like it in American history. Tonight, the questions are only growing about where it could lead. Hutchinson testified Donald Trump knowingly sent an armed mob to the Capitol and even wanted to join them at one point. Did he know there was potential for violence when he said this? After this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength, and you have to be strong. Hutchinson alleged Trump was furious. Metal detectors prevented some of his armed supporters from being let into his rally because he wanted his crowd to be as big as it could. And she testified that he and Meadows were told about the weapons. I remember Tony mentioning knives, guns in the form of pistols and rifles, um, bear spray, body armor, spears and flagpoles. I remember distinctly Mark not looking up from his phone. And then he looked up and said, have you talked to the president? And Tony said, yes, sir. He's aware too. He said, all right, good. He asked Tony if Tony had informed the president. Yes. And Tony said, yes, he had. 
We've now heard several accounts that people at the White House, Trump included, were warned about the dangers faced by those in Congress that day. So the biggest question, is there evidence, enough evidence from her testimony to charge the former president with a crime? Has she raised the stakes for Cipollone to testify, not to mention Mark Meadows? We will, will we ever hear from either of them? They likely hold the master keys to what this panel is trying to unlock. Let's take it to my first guests who have very valuable insight. Alyssa Farah Griffin was a Trump White House communications director. She worked with Meadows and is friends with Cassidy Hutchinson. Also with us, John Dean. Yes, that John Dean, the former White House counsel who made history with his testimony half a century ago, exposing revelations about President Nixon during the Watergate hearings that ultimately led to Nixon's resignation. Thank you both for being here, first of all. All right, I'm going to start with you, John. Um, These are big revelations. How does a subpoena change the considerations for Pat Cipollone on doing more than that informal meeting that he's already had with the committee and coming forward and testifying uh, publicly? It forces the issue. He's got to make a decision. Is he going to fight it? Is he going to do what his predecessor did, which tied it up for two years, the issue of Don McGahn testifying? Or is he going to work out some kind of cooperative deal and negotiate some terms where he can testify? Now, I think it's very important under the rules of ethics that he testify as well, because as it appears to an outsider right now, he's part of an ongoing conspiracy that is illegal. And if he, there's no evidence that he has uh, withdrawn from it. He's advised against it, but has he gotten out of it? He needs to come forward for a multitude of reasons, including saving our democracy. That is really stark, um, especially coming from you, someone who was uh, in the hot seat uh, back in 1973. Alyssa, let's turn to you. We have heard a lot about that former White House counsel um, already. I want to, we've heard his name over and over and over again. And this is just a sample of the many times that we've heard Cipollone's name showing just how important his testimony would be. White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. Mr. Cipollone. Mr. Cipollone. Mr. Cipollone. I see Pat Cipollone barreling down the hallway towards our office. Pat Cipollone said, yeah, this is a murder-suicide pact. I called Pat Cipollone. Mr. Cipollone. Mr. Trump's former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. A former White House counsel is, you know, or the White House counsel at the time is a big deal. They know a lot and they know what's legally right and wrong um, and are supposed to be advising the president. And everyone knows that. So how would hearing directly from him have an impact or would it have an impact on those who are still supporting Donald Trump? So I think he's probably the most important testimony that could potentially still be gotten by the committee. And I would, to set expectations, there's virtually no chance you're going to see him come raise his hand and do it before a camera the way that Cassidy Hutchinson was brave enough to do. I do think it's helpful that he is considering doing these transcribed interviews. I trust Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony word for word. I know her. I served with her. The things that she said, and honestly, a few of the lines that she quoted Pat Cipollone as saying, you're going to have blood on your hands. We're going to have committed every crime under the sun. I can hear him saying that. I worked with him only for about eight months, but it sounds like him. He's going to be able to confirm if that's what he in fact said and why he said it. So I would expect some level of cooperation. He's obviously, John Dean could speak to this better than me, but has 
a level of privilege that he can claim. He was the president's attorney, but some of this goes so far beyond the scope. It's talking about overturning the election, overturning our democracy, and I think it's critical he testify. Okay, I want to talk to you quickly just about something that you said um, about Cassidy. You said, I trust what she says implicitly. You know, she has no reason to lie in your mind. Let me ask you about something that has come up, and that is a lot of people are jumping, especially those who support Donald Trump, on some testimony she made about what she heard. It was hearsay. But she told the committee she heard uh, that Donald Trump tried to jump over one of his agents, security agents, and get to the car and try to turn the car back to go back to the Capitol on January 6th because he wanted to be a part of it, uh, even looking like he was might choke um, one of his Secret Service agents. They are now pushing back against that, the Secret Service. Who do you believe? Believe Cassidy completely. And and let me tell you why. Um, And by the way, this was the only part of her 90-minute, roughly 90-minute testimony that relied on hearsay. It was one thing that I have to guess the committee deliberately allowed her to share because they're going to build on it in further hearings, if I'm predicting. But I will say this. Cassidy, I trust her word. She was there under oath. Tony Ornato, who is the other person who told her this story, has not has not come in under oath and denied it. If he comes and testifies before the committee, I don't think he would perjure himself, but I have been on the receiving end of him saying that I've lied about something that was witnessed by several other people. Jake Tapper reported this, reported this out. I've seen him to be somebody who's willing to lie for the former president. Cassidy has everything to lose, and she's doing what's right for her country. And the rest of her testimony is going to be able to be corroborated, I believe. That's a huge thing to say, that you think that somebody from the Secret Service in his position would at so least skirt the one potentially thing, the I truth. I think people need to keep in mind, so he's career secret service, but he was a political appointee in his role as deputy chief of staff. Um, so that is very different. Mm. I wouldn't be shocked, to be honest with you, if in you know six months he ends up at some Trump-aligned group on the outside when he eventually leaves secret service. So this is a political cr- person we're talking about. That is something to look out for. Uh, John Dean, you have been there and done this during the Watergate hearings, as we mentioned earlier. Um, could this subpoena, combined with Hutchinson's stunning public testimony, open the floodgates like it did uh, back in 1973. And I, and I want people to hear this because this was such a stunning moment uh, for those folks who were not around uh, when this happened. Sorry to Asia. But for the folks that, that didn't see this moment in history um, when you stood up um, and you made this statement. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency. And if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. I mean, stronger words have not been said until we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson. Do you think that her testimony is the key to unlocking that door and the floodgates of people start sitting down in front of this committee and telling it like it is? I certainly think it'll get the attention of many people on the fringe. I'm not sure it'll reach the hardcore Trump supporters. I have done a lot of study of authoritarian personalities after I worked for our last authoritarian president, the one that preceded Trump. Uh, And these are people who are believers and they can make facts that they don't want to hear just vanish in their mind. So I'm not sure it will open a floodgate. I think a lot of people who weren't sure and were on the edge, they'll say, aha, well, there's a loyal Trump supporter who's honestly telling us what happened, uh, as your guest tonight is. Uh, And that's important to a lot of people and will change their mind. I just have to quickly, lastly, ask you, you were given a a deal. 
How important is that? I mean, if there is no deal for some of these people who might come forward, we're not going to see them, are we? No, but they have the power to give. They have that power at the community. At this, this committee has immunity power. Uh, it was irrelevant to me. I told him I would testify with or without it. My lawyer said, you're going to take it. <laughs> but I decided to stand up and account for my behavior anyway by pleading. So it wasn't an issue with me. But I think there are people who could be immunized and uh, come forward, and they may well yet be using that power in the January 6th committee. John Dean, thank you so much, Alyssa. There's more to discuss with you just a bit later. Ahead, Attorney General Merrick Garland said he's closely watching these hearings, as you might imagine. What does this explosive testimony mean to any potential case his Justice Department might pursue? And could it include potential crimes that have happened since January 6th, such as witness tampering? Former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez joins me next. Congresswoman Liz Cheney offered this as to the question of whether anyone in Trump's supporting world could be tied to a crime. Trump does read transcripts. And just keep that in mind as I proceed through my interviews with the committee. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. Messages to witnesses, allegations of witness tampering could mean This isn't just about possible crimes that were committed back on January 6th and before. It may also be about ones that are still being committed. My next guest brings a unique perspective as both a former White House counsel and a former attorney general. Alberto Gonzalez, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you. All right. Uh, We just heard uh, that bit from from Liz Cheney where she is reading some of the information, the texts or the emails sent to witnesses What would you tell anyone, uh, former president or not, who might be trying to convince someone not to cooperate with a congressional investigation? Oh, I I mean, that's a crime. That's obstruction obstruction of justice. And so uh, that would be a serious matter. And I would tell them to knock it off. Uh, You know, this is really, uh, given the testimony that we heard from Ms. Hutchinson, I think we've moved a little bit closer where I think there are some high-level people uh, facing legal jeopardy. Uh, obviously, we haven't heard from some key players like Pat Cipollone. I think the subpoena there is very significant. Uh, and uh, I, again, it's a serious matter when the White House counsel is asked to testify before Congress. There are issues of separation of powers and executive privilege. Obviously, that privilege is not, is not uh, absolute. It is qualified. So if you've got a situation where you have a high-profile investigation, where the information is uh, very, very important, then that privilege is often uh, uh, not honored by, by the courts. Uh, again, a lot. To, we have a long way to go here, but uh, my prediction is just based on where, we sit, where I sit today is that Mr. Cipollone is going to be compelled to testify either before the Congress or he's going to be compelled to testify before the Department of Justice. If he's called before the Department of Justice, there is no such thing as executive privilege since the Department of Justice is within the executive branch. So, uh, you know, he's got some tough choices, to um, tough decisions to make. There is a history. People may think, well, you're the you're the lawyer to the president. You can't be compelled to testify. 
there have been there is a long history of uh, senior White House officials in connection with investigations who have testified. Uh, Beth Nolan, White House Counsel, uh, Charles Ruff, White House Counsel, Lloyd Cutler, White House Counsel. So, you know, it's not sacrosanct that, that, the pres that the president's lawyer cannot be compelled to testify before Congress. As I said, the, right. the privilege so the, is not absolute. The whole idea there is nobody is above the law. And so you can, you can do what you can to try to find out if a crime was committed. I noticed that you said something um, important. You said that, you know, there could be some people very high up uh, that could face criminal charges. The question is, after hearing from Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, that testimony was as uh, strong a testimony that, that I think anyone has heard in a situation like this, maybe ever. Um, is it enough when you look at what she has said and the evidence that the that the committee has? Is it enough to charge the former president? Well, again, is it is it enough in that can you get all of that testimony into court in, uh, into a court a criminal proceeding? Because again, there are rules of evidence. You've got to convince uh, you know a jury of of uh, the president's peers that that's who we're, who we're talking about, and so it's a quite quite a different. Uh, situation to to make the case under the rules of evidence with cross-examination. But I, I will say that it, it seemed to me we took a big step forward in terms of showing that the president was aware uh, that uh, people were armed and, and that he encouraged them to go to the Capitol. I, I, I think he can make the argument that he encouraged them to obstruct uh, Congress in terms of exercising their constitutional duty. So I think there was a step forward. And that's that's when I said uh, high level people, I think, are closer to legal jeopardy today. Uh, that's what I was referring to. But I think here's the hard thing. And, and you know, lawyers will, 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 will know more about this and you certainly would. But the hard thing is, is he may have encouraged someone to go to the Capitol. But did he encourage an attack? Did he encourage, uh, did he take that next major step? Do you think that that's come anywhere near being proven? Well, you have, you have, uh, I think you get to the point where it's the connection is inescapable, that that is exactly what he intended. Maybe he didn't say those words, but maybe he did. Maybe he said those words to his chief of staff. Maybe that was that was a communication, an utterance that he made to the White House counsel. We just don't know yet. But you get to the point where the, the connection is inevitable. Maybe he doesn't exactly say those words, but by his conduct and by his knowledge, he's a you know, we know that the outcome is only can only be one thing. We know that his his desire, his intent can only be one thing. And that's something that the a jury, ostensibly, if they were going to bring a case, uh, would have to to decide ultimately. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Alberto Gonzalez, uh, we appreciate your time here. And well beyond January 6th, Donald Trump has remained the leader of the Republican Party. He could even become president again, or at least run for the presidency. But are the odds of that now shrinking with these hearings? We'll take it up with some power players on the other side of the break. Donald Trump, completely unhinged, angry, and out of control. That's the picture that some former Trump aides say they now have of the former president in the wake of Cassidy Hutchinson's remarkable testimony. 
One Trump ally even told CNN that Hutchinson's revelations could even make it easier for Republican presidential hopefuls to challenge Trump in a primary should he run. Alyssa Farah Griffin is back with me along with Van Jones and Shan Wu. All right, Alyssa, I'm starting with you. Um, One Trump ally essentially said this testimony could basically be a campaign commercial for the one and only Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in 2024. We have seen polling also that shows for now that he's he he, he is in the race. Uh, if it were him and Trump today, uh, more people said they would vote for him than Trump. Surprised? Well- not surprised, but twofold answer. The fact that we're even still talking about Donald Trump after this insane testimony under oath from a former staffer actually speaks to how powerful he is, I regret to say. The fact that he is not already just thrown to the side of history. That said, I guarantee there is a certain governor of Florida who's paying very close attention to how the public is receiving these hearings. There is going to, there are going to be people who challenge the former president. I think Mike Pence will. I think Mike Pompeo's looking at it. I think a lot of people are seeing a weakened man who the public is just a little tired of. Um, But at the end of the day, he does have a death grip on the Republican Party. But the one thing I always say to my fellow Republicans is, this is no longer a binary choice of Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. If there were ever a moment to jump ship from this man who tried to overthrow our democracy on January 6th, now's the time. We could have somebody who will not do that in office. You were there. You I'm ostensibly have people who still are hoping Trump rises from whatever just happened to him <laughs> in this testimony. Are they swayed at all? Are they watching? Because you look at the numbers of some other networks, you know, who have been very pro-Trump and... It's like it doesn't exist. I I warn about this. I think we kind of live in a split-screen America where there are certain folks who just do not believe what they're seeing in front of their eyes and what they're hearing under oath. This, this, you know, entire congressional committee is illegitimate, so they don't believe it. I frankly have family members who do. So, like, the people need to keep telling the truth. I do think people like Cassidy, who stands to gain nothing from this, that really helps. Somebody who's young, doesn't benefit from this, and had the bravery to tell that story, that's got to resonate with some Americans. I want to ask you something. Something, Van Jones, because you know you're you're sitting here watching this. You were there throughout the whole you know four years, right, talking about some of the things that were happening with Donald Trump. When you see what was said in front of all of America, mm-hmm. did it surprise you, or were you one of those people that said, "I mean, that's what people thought anyway"? Oh, it's hard to be surprised anymore. It's hard to be shocked anymore. But what I will say is, kind of hiding in plain sight here is, what if? The Secret Service had said to Donald Trump, yes, sir, we will drive you to the head of this mob of armed lunatics. Think, I mean, I don't care who you are as a Republican. That is the judgment of the person that you want to have with the nuclear codes. If, he, if, if, there, if any of this is true, don't worry about the grabbing the steering wheel. Just the request mm-hmm. of a sitting commander in chief to be at the head of a mob should shock everybody. Those are those are strong words. And I think there's a lot of people looking forward to say, wait a minute. In this testimony, we saw the statements that were either emails sent to people who were going to testify. And for a lot of people, that sounded very, for lack of a better word, mob boss like Hmm. going forward. When you hear what was written to some witnesses before they testified, are there potential people who might get charged with tampering, with trying to stop a witness from going forward. Um, Is that possible, that more charges could be coming? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Not only that, those kinds of charges, I think, are low-hanging fruit for the Justice Department. It's not going to require a lot of hand-wringing over 
am I going into an area that's never been done before, charging a former president? This is standard playbook, witness tampering, easy to do. And so I think that's why those may be really more easy standalone charges in a lot of ways. Shan, here's the, here's the hard question, I know. I, I like to throw the hard ones at you. You're a lawyer, you know, we do that to you. Um, the hard question is, how long would it even take if the DOJ did decide, okay, we're going to make a case against the former president of the United States? Are, aren't we talking months, potentially years, that this could take to bring a case like that? Because if they lose, what are the consequences? Well, take that in two parts. I, I think the losing question goes to prosecutorial discretion, what they're worried about doing. And here, as other people have said, I mean, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, the consequences of not making him accountable, his inner circle accountable, are really devastating for the democracy. I mean, these, this is a case that has to be tried. Practically speaking, you're exactly right. It will take a while to get it in the pipeline and actually try the case. And that is a problem. Um, with all due respect to A.G. Garland, who I think is a man of great integrity, I think <clears throat> DLJ is a little bit late to the dance on this, and they're having to play catch-up, and that is a definite problem. Van, I've got to ask you, if this does take a long time, if it mm-hmm. never happens, uh, but if it does go forward and it's 2023 or even 2024, mm-hmm. is this just going to be one of those political footballs to get thrown around, the Republicans say, look, it's just a you know stupid political witch hunt, and the Democrats are like, well... They're not doing much or they're not doing enough. I mean, what what happens here? Well, I mean, we saw we went through two impeachments and it didn't seem to uh, impact much of the Republican base. But I got to tell you, uh, you have a two-tiered justice system here if he doesn't get charged. Can you imagine some local yahoo in your town uh, screaming and yelling at a bunch of people who go and attack City Hall? That guy would be under the jail tomorrow morning. Uh, Can you imagine anybody in your community uh, calling witnesses and saying, hey, you know, I'm watching you. That guy would be under the jail tomorrow. So the idea that you have Trump and his whole operation acting this way, and there's not been a single charge against any of them, it's, it's discrediting for the, those of us who live in communities that are impacted by over-policing and over-incarceration, watching people go to jail for 20 and 30 years for doing tiny amounts of, of stuff with a hundredth of the evidence. It's, it discredits the entire system if there are no charges. All right, going forward, this is going to be hard for the DOJ. Can we all agree? Like, they're in a tough spot at this point. I I, I do just want to say, though, that, you know, when they're exercising their discretion, you have to think about defenses and are there any innocuous reasons? And when you think about that here, there are no innocuous reasons. There's no reason for them to be pursuing trying to meet in the war room, trying to go through this memo that Eastman did, Mm -hmm. because there is no fraud. So really, everything that they're doing that comes out indicates that it's a crime. And I just want to say one final thing. It is not a non-zero chance that this man could be president again. And that's something I think Democrats need to be keenly aware of. I think Joe Biden's in a much more difficult place now to win re-election. This could be the, fe- the commander-in-chief in just a matter of years. Alyssa get in the final word. Alyssa Farah Griffin, Shan Wu, and Van Jones, thank you guys again for being here. We're coming back to you in just a bit, but up next, the new battlegrounds in the abortion fight in the state's and online. And the host of the Slow Burn podcast joins me with a moment in history from before abortion was legalized. Could it tell us what the future holds for women in America? That coming up next. As the country continues to try and understand the true impact of the Supreme Court decision ending the constitutional right to abortion, 
The focus is now shifting to the states, where the laws that are enforced will depend on local prosecutors at times. This, as new research reveals, online search traffic on abortion medication served 162% in the hours before and after the draft opinion leaked in May. And one birth control provider reports seeing a 300% increase in prescriptions asked for by patients after the leak and ruling. Joining me now is Susan Matthews. She's the news director for Slate, and she hosts the new season of its Slow Burn podcast, which focuses on Roe versus Wade. Now, to understand where we're headed, I know you have heard this saying before, we have to look back to where we have been. And you did that in a really unique way. Your podcast went back and looked at a case of the first American woman who was charged with manslaughter. Her name was Shirley Wheeler uh, for having an abortion. Can you tell us when you did this, what does this case perhaps tell us about our potential future? Yeah, I think the really interesting thing here is Shirley Wheeler was, I think, 22 years old when she was in Daytona Beach, Florida in 1970. She was pregnant. She had already had one pregnancy and she had really severe health problems and she needed a second. She needed to have an abortion. And so she she got an illegal abortion and it was it was definitely illegal in the state of Florida. But it was basically up to the discretion of the local prosecutor to 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 charge her and she was actually put in jail for 4 days before they actually set a trial date for her and she had a trial in front of a six person jury three men and three women who found her guilty of manslaughter simply for having an illegal abortion and i think that when i think about what people say now mm-hmm. about what's going to happen in this post dobbs situation the thing that really worries me is that it doesn't necessarily matter what the federal level is saying about this anymore. It's really going to come down to the states, and it's really going to come down to the discretion of individual local prosecutors to decide what to do under this patchwork of laws that we're trying to figure out what is the law right now. It's a really frightening situation. There is a a picture there of um, the states that have either restricted or banned uh, abortions. And we're talking that about 26 states are in that Uh, That's more than half the country uh, are in that realm where they're either going to severely restrict or they're going to ban. Now, look, this was a boon and cheered for by those who have wanted to stop abortions in this country, um, which, you know, for a lot of the Americans in that pool, they're, they're very happy to see this and they feel like the Supreme Court made the right decision. But when it comes to practicalities in talking to the doctors um, who perform abortions and other kinds of health care, they say women are going to do it. Mm-hmm. They're going to figure out a way to do it, even if it means taking their own lives and putting those in jeopardy. Absolutely. I mean, I think the real thing that I found in looking at this time before Roe, before the, the right to abortion you know, was, was, was legalized, is that Women are going to get into this situation no matter what. They're going to need abortions no matter what. It doesn't really matter if it's legal or not. It's really about what type of abortion women are going to get. And so whether it's a legal abortion or not, whether it's a safe abortion or not, those are the kinds of questions that we're going to deal with now rather than whether they're going to get abortions or not. There is another push by those in the conservative mindset to try and criminalize this. In other words, not only have the providers be criminalized and prosecuted, but to actually have women, just like the person, Miss Wheeler, that you highlighted, to have women charged with manslaughter. I, I want to listen to the assistant state attorney who handled Wheeler's case uh, all those many years before abortion was legalized. Um, here's what he said about her case. 
I've never worked on an abortion case before or after, and I didn't consider this an abortion case. I looked at it as a manslaughter case. If she is going to kill a fully formed, viable child, then she is certainly responsible, and if someone is helping her do it, they're certainly responsible. That's just uh, common sense. Now, that could be the same language that is used now, correct? Because it really is up to the discretion of whomever gets the case, correct? Exactly. And I think one really interesting thing about this prosecutor, when I talked to him, abortion was illegal in Florida at this time. And what he said to me is that he was charged with prosecuting this. And he had to deal with the fact that he thought that women were getting illegal abortions, and he was trying to actually find out who had given her the illegal abortion, and surely wouldn't tell him who had done it, and that was part of the reason why he went after her instead. Mm-hmm. And so in his mind, he was trying to protect women, I think in a way that's, that's part of what he was talking mm-hmm. about, but it's really when you don't have this, this um, you know, when you don't have Roe to protect women, it's going to happen in a way that... it's totally up to people like Horace Smith to decide what they want to do. I want to lastly ask you, and quickly, there is one part of this podcast that made me stop in my tracks as I was walking. What did the judge sentence her to? Yeah, after Shirley was, was found guilty by the jury, the judge handed down a sentence that was two years probation. And that was sort of a relief for Shirley because she could have gotten 20 years in prison for the manslaughter charge. But what the judge said as part of her terms of her probation was that she either had to marry her boyfriend or leave the state of Florida. This is a woman who's 23 years old, is not a child, is being told by the judge, get married or go home, essentially. I would hope that in this day and age that wouldn't be a legal sentence, would it? it it's a very interesting thing of how this was part of the terms of her probation. You can, there are lots of different things that can be tar- part of the right. terms of probation. Like you can't go to a bar, you can't stay out late at night. So I you think that it, yeah, you can't, yeah, all right. of these yeah. different things. Yeah. So there are these archaic laws that can be brought into play now. And that's part of what is really frightening about this moment. Really interesting. Susan Matthews, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Coming up, two more big rulings expected tomorrow by the Supreme Court, including on immigration. This as what is being called the deadliest human smuggling incident in United States history. There are already arrests in that case, and the political blame game on immigration has been reignited because of this. When CNN Tonight returns, we'll discuss. Tonight, the DOJ says four people have now been arrested and charged in the worst human smuggling incident in United States history. That includes this 45-year-old man who authorities suspect was the driver of the truck where 53 migrants were found dead, packed in the scorching hot trailer. Watch as the San Antonio police chief describes the harrowing scene. The floor of the of the trailer, it was, it was, it was just completely covered in bodies, completely covered in bodies. There were at least 10 plus bodies outside the trailer because when, when we arrived, when EMS arrived, we were trying to find people who were still alive. So we had to move bodies out of the trailer onto the ground. Among the dozens of dead, 
16 people survived, including four children. The San Antonio Archbishop tells CNN that most of the survivors he visited in the hospital were either unconscious still or unable to speak because of their injuries. We are back now with Van Jones and Essie Cup has joined us. Thank you both for being here. This is a tough situation. Um, when you consider what that was like for people in the back of a truck who are desperate already, um, it is hard to turn to what this is turning into, which is a political battle once again. Almost immediately after we learned of this tragic event, the Texas governor, Governor Abbott, and other Republicans jumped on this immediately. And this is the tweet from Abbott. He said, these deaths are on Biden and the result of his open border policies. Van, what would you say to the governor in response to that? Well, um, I think that's in poor form. Um, And I think it's ill-considered for him to say that. Um, People, uh, those people died for a dream that we take for granted every day. Um, And our hearts have been open to the plight of Ukrainians who are fleeing for their lives. It's not just Ukrainians. There are people all around the world who are fleeing, you know, very dangerous situations. And when those people try to get here and the doors are closed, it's not open. It's not an open border. It's a closed border. And they have to try to sneak through and they lose their life. Take a beat. Take a beat, Governor, uh, before you make it into politics. And they died a horrible death. Um, They were basically cooked to death in the back of that. Horrible. Um, Treated like animals. And I had read an interview with Greg Abbott from a couple of years ago, and he said, listen, after tragedies, um, we turn to our faith. That did not feel very Christian for him to come out immediately and blame Biden. Listen, this is a political problem. There is no way around it. Policies on the left and the right are responsible for having a broken immigration system. Is anyone under the impression we can't fix our immigration system? Of course we can. Every time, though, the fixing is supposed to happen, nobody can come up with something that everybody can agree on. Well, because if you fix it, you can't run on it. If you fix Mm. it, you can't fundraise off of it. If you fix it, you can't fearmonger off of it. There have been bad Republican immigration policies and bad Democratic immigration policies. And it's time for people to grow up, do their jobs, and solve these problems so that tragedies like this don't happen. There's a real opportunity, um, just like what, what happened with uh, the gun control, gun safety Uvalde, fight. Right? When a tragedy like this happens, rather than pointing fingers and turning on each other, we should be turning to each other. Uh, I do think there's an opportunity to get something done. Frankly, part of the reason that um, food prices are going up is because you, can't, you don't have enough workers coming right. here to do um, a- the agricultural work and the service work that we would expect people to do. There's, everybody has a stake in making sure this problem gets solved. And if this type of thing doesn't bring us together, I don't know what will. I liked what you said. Can you repeat that? Rather than jumping... Yeah, rather than turning on each other, we could turn to each other. Uh, that, that's the appropriate response to this level of tragedy. Yeah. As this issue <clears throat> goes forward, I mean, could this be that moment? Could this be the Uvalde moment? Because 53 people dead in the most disturbing scenario that you can imagine. And we now know that children were in yeah. the back of that van. Yeah, um, nothing worse to imagine. Um, and who knows if, you know, their parents were with them or back at home and uh, just terrible. You would hope that this would be a moment. But our 
country and our political system produces too few of those moments. Mm -hmm. We take too few of those opportunities. Um, But I would hope that for once we could um, depoliticize the issue of immigration and just try to solve problems. But I'm not very optimistic we will. Essie, you presented a really sinister view of why the immigration issue from dreamers yep. to folks who are waiting to come in for asylum. Right. Do you hold that same view, that this is about being able to run on, this is about everything but solving the problem? There's a lot of posturing and BS that goes on on both sides, and it's really frustrating. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, maximalist views. If we can't get everything in our immigration bill, we don't want anything. Uh, that's not going to work. Um, if I were President Biden, uh, if I were Kamala Harris, I would call a meeting tomorrow and ask the governor, since the governor wants to make an issue of it, to come to the White House, ask the dreamers to come to the White House, and let's get on with it. Um, if I were Biden, I would take that open door that the, and I would come right on through because it's not an easy problem to solve in our corners. It's very easy to solve if we come together. What is it going to say about us as a country if we cannot come together after 53 people dead like this? I think it's clear we're so broken and tribal and divided And, you know, a majority of Americans do not feel as though this two-party system represents them because the two parties are speaking to the fringes Mm -hmm. and not for the majority. Um, Most people are in the middle on a lot of issues. They're not in the extreme on immigration or abortion or guns, and no one's talking um, to them in the middle. Uh, They're coming up with these crazy ideas that are very unpopular. So about the base, not about the majority. And and most people in most neighborhoods, in most workplaces, in most marriages, you come together and you cut a deal. Compromise is the word that has become a bad word, and it shouldn't be. Thank you for hanging out with me. I will be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.